This is episode two of Davy and Me, the Alamo. It must have been my fourth or fifth year of elementary school, and I had just arrived at the destination that would shape my identity forever. Sporting a coonskin cap, that stereotypical frontiersman garb made out of raccoon pelts, I stood in the small shadow of the Alamo. I was looking up at the closest thing to an ancient relic I'd ever seen, an old Catholic chapel of adobe Spanish design, dwarfed by the tourist attractions around it, including a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum and a paved river walk leading to SeaWorld. I was, for a brief moment, disappointed. I thought, could this be the same Alamo that was familiar to me, the one used as a fort during the Texas War for Independence? The epic conflict where 187 rebels fought off thousands of professional soldiers? Ten years later, fresh out of high school, I was on a European backpacking trip, and I felt the same way. I was standing beneath the only slightly larger shadow of the Colosseum in Rome. Once again, I thought, clearly what I had known for so long was distorted, if not embellished. Looking up at the Roman ruins, seeming to take up only half the space of a soccer field, it was hard to believe what I had known from history class. I had been told that a Roman emperor had the whole stadium filled up with water, and that they would float gigantic ships there reenacting mythological sea battles. I also remembered from the movies the scenes of gladiators fighting each other to the death. How could all that stuff happen in a building that looks so small in modern standards? But anyway, years before that trip to the Colosseum in Rome, back in the USA, I was there, standing in the small shadow of the Alamo, that old Catholic chapel of adobe Spanish design. My disappointment was overcome when I reminded myself of the real reason why I took the trek all the way from pure Michigan to the Lone Star State in Texas. Yes, this was the place where a battle was fought for 187 rebel dreams and Texas independence too. But more importantly, this is where a real-life superhero had made his epic final stand. I had indeed journeyed a long distance to visit a relic, perhaps not one of Catholic significance, but spiritual nevertheless. Because by standing there, in that small shadow of the Alamo, I was sharing the space with my childhood role model, Davy Crockett. Welcome to Hero and Me, a podcast that celebrates exceptionalism, not as a thing that distinguishes notable figures of history textbooks from our own times, but as an ideal, achievable, right now. This storytelling series parallels the lives of our heroes with the ups and downs of our own times, so that we can learn from the past, live better lives in the present, and succeed in the pursuit of our most lofty goals. If you agree, that heroism is not about perfection but trial and error, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. If you think history is fun, but also useful, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. If you are looking for inspiration, but are sick of the self-help books that all say the same things, I made this podcast for you. In which case, you can find us at briannacrandall.com slash heroandme and subscribe to our mailing list 
We will send you the episodes as they come out, along with additional stories and commentary about the heroes we cover. Thank you for listening, and now back to Davy and me, Episode 2, The Alamo. In 1797, when George Washington, the first commander-in-chief of the U.S., was about to step down from the presidency after two four-year terms, the King of England remarked, If he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And he did. He gave up his power, and the second commander-in-chief was elected, setting an example that future presidents would follow to this very day. Dumbfounded, the British king must have felt. Why? Because in those days, if you had power, you tended to keep it. England's experiment with the type of non-hereditary-based transfer of power we know today had already failed. The revolution in England overthrowing the crown did not result in democracy, but one man rule. The King of England was executed, and a tyrant with an indefinite term of office took his place, and remained in office until his death. But soon after that, another King of England was put back in power. So, when the American War for Independence happened, it is not surprising that some advocated for Washington to be president for life. In fact, American autocracy, ruled by one strong leader, could have happened in a crisis known as the Newburgh Conspiracy. It was 1783. A letter had been circulating in army camp in Newburgh, New York, citing the grievances of American soldiers. They were outraged, having not received the pensions promised them for their sacrifices in the American War for Independence. The contents of the letter suggested that the soldiers would throw their support behind Washington if he were to intervene in Congress. In other words, overthrow the government. After hearing this, Washington prepared a formal speech for those loyal soldiers, knowing that they were willing to stand behind him in a new rebellion, this time against the newly formed Continental Congress. While they awaited his oration, the general and future U.S. president, fumbled around his pockets, searching for his glasses, and thus spoke the famous words that caused the would-be usurpers to be filled with tears. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. After hearing this, the soldiers realized that there was no fight left in the aging general. There would be no coup d'etat. He would step aside and let the leaders of the former British colonies continue on with the system we use to this very day, representative government. George Washington was perhaps, just like the King of England had said, the greatest man in the world.
Could things have played out differently? Historians love to ask that question. Although we will never know for sure, we have a fairly decent example of what could have happened if the president sided with the Newburgh conspiracy soldiers. Because while all this was going on, a second American revolution was about to break out south of the modern United States border in New Spain. Just like in the 13 colonies, the Mexicans had become disillusioned with the European-ruled empire that they belonged to. They were overtaxed by the king of Spain, who valued their lands only in as far as they could be exploited for their silver, gold, and copper. When the local peasants tried to grow olives, vines, and mulberries, the constables came and chopped down their trees. He wanted them to be dependent on the empire. Loyalty to the crown was time after time rewarded with economic slavery. Independence in war became the only viable solution. The Mexicans threw off the yoke of their oppressors and won their freedom. An 1824 constitution was ratified, and rallying behind the George Washington of Mexico, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, they drove out the Spanish not once, but twice. And like Washington, Santa Ana was offered the job of president soon after the war was over. Unlike his American counterpart, though, he humbly declined the honor, stating that his duties as general were now complete and that he would retire to his hacienda. My whole ambition is restricted to beating my sword with a plowshare, he said. However, not long after the War of Mexican Independence, there was the Mexican version of the Newburgh Conspiracy. And just like with the greatest man in the world, Santa Ana was consulted by the masses with grievances over the inefficiencies of the new Republican government. They asked him to do something about it, and he did. This time Santa Ana, the patriotic general of Mexican independence, did not decline the more attractive leadership position of absolutist tyrant. The Mexicans fought for something new and ended up with the all too familiar. Santa Ana was one of the first modern dictators in history. He quickly dissolved parliament and all states' rights, creating a top-to-bottom government ruling from Mexico City. Worst of all, there was no trial by jury, an injustice that Mexican intellectuals were disgusted by, prompting the many patriots of the Mexican independence movement to flee to the northern frontier region of their young nation, Tejas, modern-day Texas. Now, Texas was a unique location, inhabited by a community of former Americans who had immigrated into the sparsely populated borderlands. Not only Americans, though, it was also settled by the German, Dutch, Swedish, Irish, Scottish, and Welsh. These immigrants collectively came to be known as the Texians. In contrast, there was the local Spanish-speaking population, the Tejanos. Before the Texians even arrived, the Tejanos had developed a reputation for being a rebellious people who had resisted the Spanish with a passion and had suffered greatly for it. During the time that Santa Ana came into power, many of the Tejanos had parents and grandparents who were murdered by the Spanish soldiers. At first, Texians and Tejanos 
peacefully called for the return of the 1824 Constitution. But then Santa Anna sent something threatening, building in the frontier regions of his recently acquired empire. There are rumors that the North would secede from the Union. Fearing the outbreak of a civil war, he sent troops to disarm the Texian and Tejano militia. The Mexican regular army arrived in a small town called Gonzales and demanded that a cannon which was originally installed to defend against raiding Comanche Indians be turned over immediately. The story goes that the rebellious Texians and Tejanos of the Mexican frontier shouted, Come and take it! The Mexican troops fired on the militiamen, and a skirmish broke out. The war had just begun. There was no turning back now. A return to the 24 Constitution would be impossible, and only two paths remained. Either a nation of freedom would emerge, or a military state autocracy. Six feet tall, stout and muscular in feature, a frontiersman clad in buckskin clothes and sporting a coonskin cap, gazed out over the railing of a steamship, puffing its way down the Mississippi River. Normally talkative, this particular evening he stood alone deep in thought, as he watched the sun dip into the mysterious western horizon. He was 49 years old when he left the backwoods of Tennessee, for this latest adventure moving deeper into the wild frontier. He reflected on his life adventures in his youth. As his 50th birthday drew near, he wondered what his life's work amounted to. A war veteran and professional hunter, he was born into poverty, but through his hard work and natural abilities, was able to work his way up the ladder in politics, eventually rubbing shoulders with the U.S. president himself. But none of that mattered now. He was back to where he started, penniless and out of a job. Not one to dwell on the past, though. He was thinking about his next big move. He reasoned that he may be penniless, but perhaps a little wiser. The frontiersman lifted up a newspaper he had been holding this whole time. The words were a little faded from the moisture of the river, but that didn't matter. He had practically memorized every word on the front page, which had sent chills down his spine more than once. Texas independence threatened. General Santa Ana vows to expel settlers. The exciting news spread all over the United States of a new republic emerging in the West. Indeed, many Texians, the American immigrants living in Mexico, would have written about it to their family members living on the other side of the border. The revolution had captured the imaginations of that first generation of Americans born in the USA. They had grown disillusioned with their own government that seemed to be moving away from the original ideals of the American War for Independence. It was the end of what historians refer to as the era of good feelings. Very much so a partisan period in U.S. history, not unlike what we are experiencing today. Politics had become so polarized to the point where many people said if William Henry Harrison becomes president, I'm moving to Texas. Or if Martin Van Buren becomes president, I'm moving to Texas. People wanted to reset the clock to the good old days, when they are fighting an evil monarchy, not each other. That's what the Texas cause came to represent. A second chance to see what the birth of liberty looks like. 
American frontiersmen and women left signs on cabin doors which read, GTT, gone to Texas. This meant that they were expatriating to a new country. In those days, it was as easy as packing up your stuff and moving. You didn't have to apply for citizenship, but you would have to fight. The frontiersmen, along with a couple friends he met on the way, reached the Mexican-American border and rode their horses into Tejas. Well, there she is, Texas. There's plenty of room out there for every dream I ever had. Yeah, there's room, all right. Too much of it. A desolate, desiccated desert, untouched by the hand of man and God alike. Well, there's somebody around. The frontiersman and his friends bumped into a family of peasants moving in the opposite direction, toward the U.S. border. Supposed to be a settlement of Texans down this way, Summers. Know where it is? You mean San Antonio de Verre? Yeah, that's our San Antonio. It is not safe to go over there, senores. General Santana has already taken Bejar. Well, Santa Ana's taking a town. Where are the Texans? In the Alamo. No mission across the river. Looks like we got here a mite late, baby. Let's see if we can make up for it. You must not go there, senores. The Alamo has been surrounded by a big army, and there's many patrols all over. Well, we got through the engine country without any trouble. How many? The Texians and the Tejanos, now collectively called Texans, assembled beneath the Alamo, an old Catholic chapel of adobe Spanish design. Before the rebellion could get out of control and acquire enough outside support from American volunteers though, Santa Ana, the self-proclaimed Napoleon of the West, sought to nip it in the bud by occupying the capital city. This move, however, could not stop the legendary hero people called even in his own lifetime, the Lion of the West from finding a way into the fort. The hero I am referring to here is... Colonel David Crockett. 170 years later, another American was on his way to the old chapel. Four feet tall, skinny and hyperactive, Crandall was 10 when he left the suburbs of Michigan to Texas. A class clown and amateur actor, he was born into a pretty normal family, but through his stand-up comedy routines and math class, in other obnoxious behaviors, he was able to annoy or amuse just about every adult around him with his far-fetched stories, eventually causing his sixth grade social studies teacher to explode. <laughs> On his way to the Alamo, he ate cold sandwiches when he stopped at his father's relative's house in Houston, and they would subsist on that until they reached San Antonio. On I-10, it takes about three hours to drive from Houston to San Antonio, but for little Brian A. Crandall shaking his legs impatiently as his mother blasted the same Motown jams over and over again, it felt like he was there for days. Too short to see out the back window of the rental car, he only occasionally shifted his weight and pushed himself just high enough to get a short glimpse, leaning his head up against the glass with the padding of his coonskin cap, and then seeing nothing but an ocean of desert. So far, Texas was not fun, and he had only his imagination to keep himself from going crazy. His mom had grown tired of his crazy stories. Just look out the window, she said, and so he kept himself occupied by recalling some of the movie scenes he had replayed in his mind so many times before. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, a narrative about one of America's most famous folk heroes and frontiersmen. 
land of the free. Raised in the woods so's he knew every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. My mother rented it for my brother, sister, and me to watch only a couple years earlier. We inserted the tape into the VHS player and gathered around the TV set in the living room. The classic movie had already captivated the baby boomer generation, and I was about to see what was so appealing. The depictions of an uncouth but clever wandering hero must have resonated well with me. The narrative plays out episodically like an ancient Greek myth. Davy Crockett, like a Hercules or an Oedipus, moves about town to town, committing various good deeds. He joins a war, fighting off a rogue band of Indians. He helps a farming village rid itself of a strongman named Bigfoot. And he volunteers to punish a villainous river pirate who had been raiding trading vessels along the Mississippi River. All of these brave deeds were impressive, but I think the secret of success for any hero franchise evident here is the branding of the characters. Davy Crockett was notable for his buckskin clothes, his rifle which he named Old Betsy, and his furry coonskin cap. At the height of the Davy Crockett craze, the demand for coonskin cap soared. It was not a happy time for raccoons. It was a happy time for children, though. The Ballad of Davy Crockett the soundtrack of Disney's blockbuster was on the billboards throughout 1955. In the 1990s, however, Davy Crockett wasn't exactly well-known. I was always a Ghostbusters, He-Man, and Captain Planet fan. But as I was watching Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, that was all about to change. It wasn't so much the King of the Wild Frontier part that captivated me. It was my older brother who had become the Eagle Scout after all. I didn't have the patience to make it past Tenderfoot. It was actually how the movie ended that really left a deep impression on me. Later on as a film major, I was taught that what distinguishes a good movie from a decent one is its ending. And that's absolutely true. It was the final dramatic scene, not the song, the actor, or even the cool coonskin cap that made Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, a big hit. And that last scene of Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, would take place in the small shadow of the Alamo, that old Catholic chapel of adobe Spanish design. As my mother and I drove closer and closer to San Antonio, the sun had set and we could now see some city lights, signs of civilization. We pulled into a gas station, and we were greeted by my mother's Tex-Mex cousins. I was almost as excited to meet them as I was to see the Alamo. I suddenly recalled the stories that my grandmother told me so many times before. She often shared her quaint memories she had of the time when she first moved to Texas after marrying my grandfather how she practically became fluent in Spanish while working at the family-owned fruit stand with her in-laws, and most importantly, how she learned how to make those amazing tortillas we ate whenever we visited. They were so good when they were still warm that we would just eat them plain. 
So by making this trip to Texas, I guess I was also reconnecting with my family's history. Suddenly, I felt closer to my grandparents, who I was only able to see once or twice a year. My mother's cousin's boyfriend got in the back seat of the car, and to my despair, we ended up driving another hour. Apparently, we hadn't reached the city limits yet, and it was way past my bedtime. Maybe if I knew a little Spanish like my grandmother, I would have been able to kill time by talking with that painfully quiet middle-aged man who I had just met moments ago. We occasionally smiled and nodded to each other whenever we drove by some well-lit area, a lonely gas station, or an old parking lot. But for the most part, the journey to San Antonio was dark and mysterious. Most of the ride, all I could see was that man's silhouette. There in the dark, he pulled something out of his pocket. It looked to me like an egg. And he was quietly chewing on that for most of the car ride, maybe trying not to draw attention to himself. To this day, I have no idea what that was, and I probably never will. By the time we reached the city, I had dozed off. My mother woke me up, and we walked into a Mexican restaurant. By now, the atmosphere had totally changed. In Houston, we ate cold turkey sandwiches and went to bed early. But now it was late at night, and the food wasn't like the Mexican cuisine I was used to in Michigan. I tried it, but it tasted sour. Everything around me seemed colorful and different. All this culture shock was making me sleepy, but my mother reminded me that we were going to wake up early in the morning and see the Alamo. And so I was temporarily revived. When we popped out out of the restaurant to get something from the car, my mother's cousin's boyfriend was protective. He wouldn't let us go anywhere without him. We arrived at their house in the city. There was a dog barking outside and bars on the windows. Everything there, the culture, the environment was chaotic and insecure. But when we entered the house though, they had everything prepared for us really nice. I wish I would have talked to my mother's cousins more, but I fell asleep as soon as I hit the mattress. One hundred and seventy years earlier, less than two hundred volunteers had collected their resources and did their best to fortify a makeshift castle. The most iconic section of their defense was that memorable old Catholic chapel of adobe Spanish design, the Alamo. Originally built by Franciscan monks in an era far removed from the 19th century, the chapel had never really been completed. Before any masses or baptisms or weddings could be performed within its walls, the Franciscan order began to lose favor in New Spain. Not just San Antonio, but San Francisco, San Diego, San Fernando, and other mission towns of the Southwest were neglected as the government turned inward to battle political instability. Originally meant to save souls, the Alamo would fulfill a very different role in history. Totally surrounded by Santa Ana's forces and short on supplies, the Texians and Tejanos must have prayed regularly for reinforcements. Their prayers were answered, though. Seen in the distance riding through the Mexican lines at full speed were four new volunteers, and one of them was wearing a coonskin cap. The Alamo doors swung open, letting the latest volunteers into the fort. 
squeeze. You men all right? Yeah, I reckon. You in command? No, I'm second. Colonel Bowie's commander. Jim Bowie? The fellow who invented the knife? That's him. Come on. He's been laid up. He took a fall helping us mount the cannon. The fever's been giving him the devil ever since. Colonel, we have some more reinforcements. I'll see your men are taken care of. Thank you. Colonel Bowie? Yeah. Davy Crockett from Tennessee apparently wasn't the only famous American who volunteered to fight in the War of Texas Independence. There was James Bowie from Louisiana, a wanted man, former smuggler who married into the local aristocracy. He was famous for wielding a large dueling knife. And then there was Colonel William Barrett Travis, a young lawyer from Alabama who settled in Texas after his nonpartisan newspaper went out of business. The Crockett Bowie Travis trio brought together three leaders who epitomized the Texas spirit. A second chance to get things right. These 200 you got? Yeah. Ain't there any more Texans around? Well, we've been sending messengers out. One did get back from Gonzales with 32 men. Now, there's a fair-sized force down at Goliad. We sent a courier out a few days ago, but I don't think he made it. Got a fresh horse? I'll take a crack at getting through. Now, Davy, we need your breed of men here. Half horse, half alligator. We both know the amount of powder in the guns not near as important as the spirit of the man behind the sights. Half any battles knowing you're going to win. Crockett, for the first time since I've been here, I believe we can hold out. Little Betsy here and this here Arkansas toothpick of yourn. How can we lose? Look at that camp out there. Every morning there's twice as many as there was the night before. I bet there's 2,000 of them by now. Still sporting his coonskin cap, little Crandall was led to the hallowed ground by his Tex-Mex relatives. But once he arrived in front of the Alamo, he knew his way around like he had been there a hundred times. Pacing back and forth in front of the chapel, he explained to his mother and his mother's Tex-Mex cousins exactly what had happened there in 1836, for he was a little scholar of the Texas Revolution. He pointed to the roof of the chapel. That's where Colonel William Barrett Travis gazed out over the horizon and watched as thousands of Mexican troops led by the infamous General Santa Ana surrounded the Texan fort and raised the red no-quarter flag. The brave soldiers stationed in the fort responded with a single cannon shot. Terms of surrender, they needed not. Next, the little scholar took his guest to the wall that runs alongside the chapel. That's where some Mexican artillerymen set up their cannons outside the shooting range of the defenders, or so they thought. On most days, they may have been right, but they were just unlucky that the best marksman in the world was fighting on the side of the defenders. Crockett began picking them off one by one with old Betsy. A few survivors fled the scene, and the Texans cheered in excitement, their morale being lifted. Outnumbered 10 to 1, these brave Texan soldiers were fighting for something greater than any one individual, the rights that Americans had fought for 60 years earlier. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hey, Davy! Davy! The nine-year-old Davy Crockett expert's train of thought was cut off when a middle-aged man dressed up like Jim Bowie, the famous knife fighter from Louisiana, popped up out of nowhere. Hey, Davy! He said. How are we gonna get out of this mess? If the little scholar was in second grade, he may have played along with the Alamo enthusiasts. But I was a fourth or fifth grader, and as you know, such playfulness from an adult is embarrassing for a kid who takes what he does seriously. Is he yours? So cute. And so the offended Alamo expert turned his back without a word, the Jim Bowie impersonator being left with a look of disappointment, awkwardly clinging to his plastic Bowie knife 
as he watched the four-foot crocket drift away, his raccoon tail blowing in the wind. To this day, I wish I would have played along with that guy. Maybe I can go back to the Alamo someday and he'll still be there. And I can play the part of Davy Crockett, and he can ask me the same question. Hey, Davy, how are we going to get out of this mess? And I'd say what Davy Crockett would have said in that situation. His famous motto. Be always sure you're right. Then go ahead. And in March of 1836, that is exactly what Davy Crockett did. Despite rumors of a Texan retreat, the defenders dug themselves in. William Barrett Travis had now assumed full command, as Jim Bowie fell ill and bedridden. Being heavily outnumbered, Travis from Alabama had devised a strategy to prevent the enemy from attacking while he waited for reinforcements. The Texans were armed with four rifles per soldier and cannons full of shrapnel, horseshoes, and whatever else they could find. They had established a defensive line that had the potential to cause tremendous damage to the Mexican army. An ultimate assault seemed unlikely, but Travis didn't know Santa Ana's true character. The Napoleon of the West was unaffected. Davy Crockett and the rest of the Alamo defenders would receive some sobering news. Santa Ana would have to wait for its heavy artillery to arrive before he would have enough firepower to force a surrender. Frustrated that the siege on the Alamo was slowing his advance toward the larger Texan army in the north, he decided not to wait. Despite subordinates suggesting that a full attack would cause a huge blow to his army, the Mexican general and president acted unilaterally, as kings and tyrants usually do. The little scholar walked up to the entrance of the chapel. This is where Colonel Travis drew a line with his sword, he said. Men, Jim Ballin has brought news as sad as death. Colonel Fannin has been ambushed. We can expect no help. I will stay here with my command, but any of you who wish to may leave with all honor. While it is still dark, there is time to slip off to safety. I won't blame any man who doesn't stay. Those who stay, cross over the line. I don't know. The 187 defenders stood there stunned as they considered their options. Many had come to Texas for opportunity, a chance to start over again. Was it worth it to risk death given such odds? Coonskin cap sporting Davy Crockett being the decisive frontiersman that he was, was the first to make up his mind. He crossed the line. The other men followed, maybe half. Jim Bowie, the commander of the volunteers, asked his men to carry him over the line. The rest of the men followed, and not a single Texan chose to leave his comrades behind. On March 6th, thousands of Mexican soldiers equipped with ladders descended upon the Alamo shouting, Even though the Texans were caught off guard early in the morning, they quickly organized their ranks and prepared for bloody battle. As Travis had anticipated, the Mexicans took horrible casualties right from the beginning of the attack. However, the four rifles per man and shrapnel cannon fire wasn't enough to prevent the thousands of Mexican soldiers from eventually reaching the walls. Travis went down almost immediately, shot in the head as he led the Texan defense. So Crockett took command of the soldiers. Reload! Get on over there to the western wall! They need help over there! 
Row after row of Mexican soldiers were sent plummeting down the walls as they tried to scale the fort with their ladders. The Texans spread thin at their posts, ran out of time to reload their weapons. The front gate of the Alamo burst open, and the Mexican soldiers charged in with their bayonets ready. The cannons were turned inward toward the enemy storming in. Jim Bowie fought them off from his bed with two pistols in hand. He vanquished an enemy with his bowie knife before he was finally taken down. The battle had turned medieval. As the sound of guns subsided, you could hear the sounds of stabbing and hacking. Having run out of ammo himself, Davy Crockett swung his rifle like a battle axe, avenging his Tennessee comrades who had fallen by his side. Every Texian, every Tejano, every Tennessee volunteer fell one by one until Crockett stood alone defiantly, completely surrounded. Many of the soldiers cowered away from Crockett as he swung old Betsy ferociously. The Mexican soldiers on both sides of the brave frontiersmen making eye contact with each other gave the sign and they moved in on Crockett all at once. Davy Crockett lifts old Betsy one last time over his head to strike, and then the camera fades to an image of the Lone Star State flag, implying that this hero, who had cheated death so many times before, fighting river pirates and rogue Indians, had finally met his demise. It was a stunning moment that I will never forget. In this superhero story, there could be no sequel, for Davy Crockett was a real person, and he was just killed. As the credits appeared on the screen of Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, I felt a strange emotion that was absent from Ghostbusters, He-Man, or Captain Planet. In this movie, the protagonist dies. They don't even get into what happened after the battle. They don't talk about the rest of the Texas Revolution or the historical significance of the real person's life like so many Hollywood movies will do, with white text over black background. The film simply ends with Davy Crockett's last journal entry. March 6th, 1836. Liberty and independence forever. The hair stood up on the back of my little head. Heroes could die. And so, someday... Would I? Standing in the small shadow of the Alamo wearing my coonskin cap, as ridiculous and childish as my appearance must have been, I was having deep thoughts on the meaning of life and how it corresponds so closely with death. Life is only meaningful because we know someday our lives will also fade to the credits. We only have two hours to tell our story and that's it. What episodes in our life will future students be left with? And if our last impression on the world is so short like liberty and independence forever, we have to think what few words will define our own legacy when we are no longer here to say otherwise. Will we be described in the following terms? I think a role model is anybody who shows you through their actions that the thing that you're trying to achieve or the way that you want to live your life is possible. So at the end of the day, the role models are the people who give us hope. I can remember my trip to the Alamo so vividly. But the funny thing is, I don't recall a single detail about the journey back to Michigan. In a strange way, I feel as if I never left the Alamo, waiting for that last stand, when my own siege will come. Someday in the future, hopefully not too soon, when I make my final stand, will I feel as if I did everything I was supposed to do? If death was not inevitable, 
we would not need to ask this question. But humans are transient beings. Therefore, we tend to ask ourselves whenever we do something, was it worth it? Or could I have done it somewhat differently? For the defenders of the Alamo, we tell them that their sacrifices meant something to history. We'll never know, 100%, what it meant to them. For most of those people who left that gone to Texas sign on their doors and then died months later fighting in a foreign country, their names, their good deeds, would only be remembered by most people for a generation or two. But for a few people like Jim Bowie, William Barrett Travis, and Davy Crockett, their images would be perpetuated and reinterpreted and reinterpreted generation after generation. My hero, Davy Crockett, would be depicted in slightly different ways throughout history depending on the cultural circumstance. In some eras, the frontiersman aspect of his character was highlighted. Other eras emphasized his military exploits. But everyone, of all generations, respected him most for his brave sacrifice, giving his life for the cause of Texas independence. This is something I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Could I sacrifice myself for a cause that I believed in? Would I cross the line? I don't know if I could. I'd probably be too scared. Believing in something so much that you're willing to die? Davy Crockett was the first individual to communicate this idea to me. It was my first standard of what a good role model should be. And Davy Crockett was my hero. That image of Davy Crockett swinging his gun over his head just before he met his demise would linger in my mind for years to come. Several years after my trip to the Alamo, I was in 8th grade American history class. I'm guessing we were on the Texas Revolution chapter in our textbooks. I hadn't actually given Davy Crockett much thought as I had outgrown that phase in my life, but he certainly still had a special place in my childhood memory. He would provide me with an example of manhood that I would take into my teens. The teacher went over some of the same things that I talked about years before while standing in that small shadow the heroic deeds of the defenders who died at the Alamo, about James Bowie from Louisiana, William Barrett Travis from Alabama. But she also brought up some people that I wasn't so familiar with. She talked about Gregorio Esparza and Toribio Lasoya, two Dejano defenders who were left out of the Texas Revolution story by Hollywood, despite their significance to the revolution. That seemed interesting. I wondered if my cousins living in San Antonio were somehow related. But before I could fantasize any further about being related to the original defenders of the Alamo, the teacher would say something else that would cause deep disappointment and even shatter my model of heroism. Quoting a recent publication, shedding some light on the Texas Revolution, my history teacher revealed to me and the rest of the class new, strong evidence that Davy Crockett did not, in fact, die at the Alamo. He surrendered. This was episode two of Davy and Me, The Alamo. Find out what happens next by subscribing to the Hero and Me podcast newsletter at brianacrandall.com slash heroandme. Next episode, The Frontiersman.